Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It's your host, Brandon Laws. I've got a really great episode for you today. It's so different than most of the episodes we do. I, for the longest time, have been sort of an economics nerd and love talking about investing, love to to pay attention to the market and just how things work. And we're in a weird time right now. We're in a time where inflation's at a, a really high level. People are scared of the volatility in the market. And not only, you know, you as listeners, your your HR professionals, your leaders of, of organizations, and you're impacted, but your employees are also worried. You know, they don't they don't know how inflation is gonna affect their daily life. They don't know if they should invest in their retirement account. So I brought on a guest who is an expert in the market. His name is Chris Cubbage. He's the founder of Retirement Advocates. He's local to the Portland area, and he is a wealth of knowledge. In this episode, we give sort of a history lesson of where the market's coming from. Have we seen an environment like this ever before? How does the 2008 Great Recession impact where we are today? And we talk about a range of discussions from investing in your 401k or retirement plan to housing issues, to productivity, to financial literacy, all of that. It's a longer podcast, but I promise you, you're going to enjoy this. Even if you don't like economics and investing and those sort of things, I think you're going to get a lot of value from this. And at the end of the day, I think you're going to see some optimism from both Chris and myself in this podcast. And you know, when you're working with your employees and they're anxious about what the future holds, having information like this can can help alleviate some of the anxiety that a lot of us feel with uncertain times. I hope you really enjoy this episode. I really loved it personally. Um, this is These are topics I, I absolutely love talking about. And I think it's important for all of us to have a basic understanding of how the market works and what's to come and what we can do about it. So uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places, uh, and feel free to email me. Email is in the show notes of the podcast. I love hearing about how you're liking the show, how you're using it, and if it's benefiting you and your team. And please make sure to let me know what sort of topics you want to hear about in the future. If you like this episode, share it with a friend or go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. Really appreciate it. Enjoy today's episode with Chris Cubbage, the founder of Retirement Advocates. Oh, and this goes without saying, but the information on this podcast, whether it's today's episode or any other episode, this is general education and information that you can use and explore further. And if you need individualized advice, make sure to go seek the proper consultant, or certified person, whether it's an investment advisor or a CPA, tax accountant, anything like that. We're here to help transform workplaces and provide you with some educational tools that you can take and, and do a deeper dive or work with the proper consultants. So just wanted to put that in there before the episode. Enjoy.
Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to have you in person, actually. I'm excited. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, you bet. So you are an expert on the market. That's the rumor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've talked to you. I think you're an expert. What's the current market environment from your perspective? It's pretty crazy right now. Challenging, to say the least, but to some degree expected. Um, we've been we've been on a 15-year period of just enormous prosperity, tremendous bull run in, in capital markets. Anybody that owns a home or has tried to buy one or knows that real estate market's been incredibly, incredibly robust. Um, so, you know, it's normal for to have a run like that and to get to a point where it's like, hey, we got some bills to pay. Um, you know, a little bit of reckoning, so to speak. Uh, unpack that statement you just made there. Well, you know, it's interesting. Basically, we still live in the shadow of 2008. Yeah, and most people who are probably Gen Z, they live through it, but they're children. Now they're adults, and they're probably seeing this and like, what's going on? Why do you say the shadow of 2008? Yeah, I've got a 31-year-old son, and he, he was alive then, but, you know... He wasn't making a mortgage payment. He didn't have a, didn't have a job at the time, so you know he didn't feel it as directly as people who've gone through the challenges that 08 presented have gone through. It's very visceral, you know. And until you go through that experience personally, it's easy to talk about it. Until you have the own personal experience, it's not real. So that'll be interesting this time. We've got a whole generation of people that really haven't seen what we're already gone through this year, and I think will probably be a little bit of a prolonged event, so to speak, in terms of market volatility and and basically getting the inflation that's gotten out of hand here. Back under control. So you said the shadow of 2008. So something happened in 2008, 2009 timeframe to get us into the mode of prosperity. But you're saying that maybe there's a little cause effect. Absolutely. I, I would say that when I say we live in the shadow of 2008, obviously it's the events that occurred, but but very specifically would be Federal Reserve policy and monetary policy, not just in this country, but globally as a, as a relationship to that event. You know, basically we went, we were basically initiated a very large policy experiment that we lived with since then. Um, massive increases in money supply, a lot of unprecedented monetary events, so to speak, that the Fed has initiated. The interesting part about it was when Ben Bernanke did all this in 2008, there was this discussion of, okay, this is fine, but you better have an exit plan. Well, unfortunately, the exit plan never really, never really happened. And that's where we're here today, and we're having some issues. Yeah, well, we've had an unprecedented increase in money supply, not just in the U.S., but globally. Um, and that's a, that's a great experiment as long as inflation stays under control. And we've had this sort of Goldilocks period for 15 years, roughly. I use that word 15 years, but somewhere in that neighborhood. Growing monetary supply, and frankly... The Fed essentially sort of rescued the economy every chance it got, and, and it worked because inflation was under control. They could do all of that and still meet their primary mandate, which is price stability. That's their number one focus. That they're, That's their mandate, full employment and price stability. Price stability being inflation, as they define it, is around a 2% range. Well, obviously, we're way beyond that range now. So, and, and this is why people were so concerned for so long is inflation is just insidious. It's so difficult to get under control once it kind of gets, you know, you lose, that genie gets out of the bottle. Good luck putting it back in. Well, it's like if you even translate it to like the consumer side, people are fearful like, oh, home prices are going to be X, Y, Z in a year from now. I better buy today. And so then the, the speeds up the process in which we're flowing money in the system. And then I, I feel like it perpetuates itself a little bit. Absolutely. I always kind of go back to this. If you look at a modern economy, the most important factor in allocating capital in a modern economy is the cost of money or interest rates. The Federal Reserve has artificially manipulated that for the better part of 15 years. 
So probably what we're heading into now beyond just the inflationary impulse that we have to control, the other question is when you manipulate that cost of money, you've essentially suspended free market discovery for 15 years. Well, now interest rates are moving up. We're back to getting some format of free market discovery. That can be a fairly unpleasant experience as that sausage gets made. Yeah. And so for people who are looking at this situation today where are like, recession, are we in a, or is it coming? Are we in one right now? Is this time different than previous recessions? If we, I lived through 2008, I was in high school in 2001. We've had recessions in the past. Have we dealt with, with this type of environment before? Probably not. And, and the reason, you know, there, there's an old saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Every recession has similarities, but there's always this time is different. You know, like this time, it's unusual to come into a recession, the unemployment where we sit today and some other factors involved that are unusual. But that that's to be expected, given that the run we've had getting into this was this monetary experiment that we never really tried to manipulate before. So, it, you know, again, it's different this time. And that's that's what will happen is there's always differences. And as the old saying goes, generals are always fighting the last war. So we're already looking at this sort of like 2008. And actually, we're kind of looking back to 1980 from the hyperinflation of the 70s, because we're kind of trying to find the playbook for this scenario. And it's probably a combination of all of them. We're not the only economy that's gone through something like this. I mean, there, there's countries all over the world that have gone through hyperinflationary periods. How do you compare what we're going through to what some other countries have gone through in the past? Well, inflation in its base is always a monetary phenomenon, right? You go back to the Weimar Republic, the 20s in Germany, uh, hyperinflation in Venezuela, and, you know, situations all over the world like that. But in the end, it's always a monetary phenomenon. You know, you just print too darn much money. You know, it's too much money in the system. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's sort of funny when you look at the $4 trillion that the Fed kicked in as the beginning of the pandemic. That was unprecedented. But if you think about it now, it's sort of almost sort of a duh moment in the sense that I look at that and say, gee, constrained supply of, of products and services and print, you know, with, with massive money printing, that's literally like the day you show up for Econ 101 in college. That's the recipe for inflation. You know, so it's almost sort of like who didn't think this was going to happen? Right. Well, that's where like the price stability thing comes into play because if, if like a loaf of bread is $2, but yet like all of us are now making more in terms of compensation, well, we have more money chasing that $2 loaf of bread, and then you're going to have supply issues. And that's kind of where we're at right now, right? Well, yeah, you worry about the death spiral of, you know, how fast can you raise wages to keep up with prices? And the more you raise the wages, the more the prices go up. That's why the feedback loop on inflation, once that gets rolling, you can't, that, that thing catches, it's a snowball rolling downhill. That's why the Fed is so aggressive at this point. I think they'll probably raise rates significantly today. And Jerome Powell has basically said, I've been your friend for 15 years. I've come to the rescue of the market and the economy because I could. In a low inflation environment, they can play that game and they're still meeting their primary mandate. Can't do that anymore. And we had a nice little rally in July because the market was sort of predicting that he would blink and sort of rescue things again. He came out at the end of August in Jackson Hole and said, no, party's over. Hawkish statement it's he's scary. ever made. So he's, and, and that's a clear message to everybody saying, don't wait for me to save you. You guys are going to, you're going to have to, we're going to work through this and get this under control. If it's an ugly recession, I'm, I'm basically accepting that. If it, it turns the market down much further from here, I've accepted that as well. And, and he knows that's probably going to happen. And actually, this is the really hard part to swallow is he's like, we need unemployment to increase to get this inflation under control. It is crazy that we're like, we're going to engineer unemployment 
to resolve a problem. But the reality is we're, we're looking at what's the most attractive, uh, what's the cleanest, dirty shirt in this equation, so yeah. to speak. Because there's really two paths, right? We keep going on this inflationary environment or we curb the inflation and we, we might st- struggle for a year or so. And then we come out of that in a more healthy, probably hopefully linear type of growth. I hope so. I mean, if, if you look at if we're going to use the playbook of 1980 with Volcker, it ushered in that that was a painful recession. I mean, I was 11 years old in 1980. So, you know, I mean, it's like, but I still remember sitting around the dinner table and watching the news and sort of sensing the stress that, that my father and mother were going through during that period. You know, my parents owned some rental homes and they lost them, you know, so it, there was a there was some real economic pain during that. And it was it was a fairly prolonged and painful uh, recession, but it ushered in an era of prosperity starting about 82 on that it was fairly epic. So I wanted you to give me not only a history lesson, but listeners a history lesson, because I think that could pave the way going forward with everything happening right now. What do you think it's going to do to the market? What kind of movement are we going to see? I've called this whole event the Great Reset. You know, and then how clever of me to come up with that term. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the HR space, we're like, great reshuffle, you know, with people moving jobs and stuff. It, there's a name for everything. But I call it the great reset because, again, going back to the what I shared with you before, that idea of interest rates sort of set where capital goes. And when you change that dramatically, everything resets. So it's going to be volatile. Um, you know, obviously we're going to see that in real estate and that's going to be where most people see it the most. So home prices, will, will they come down or will just home buying slow down in general or maybe both? That'll be interesting this time to see because definitely home values will come down. But arguably, that could be a good thing for a number of people because I would argue that the real estate market is fairly bubblicious, if you will, a little bit. Different different people <laughs> sure have a, different perspectives, but most people go, yeah, you're not crazy for saying that. And it's really turned a whole generation of people that want to buy first homes struggling with, this is insane, you know, half a million, $600,000 for kind of a basic starter home in Oregon. It's nuts. I mean, that same home five years ago was half that price. I know that because my son and daughter-in-law bought their first home and they just have this idea, well, you know, homes just double. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, they don't, but yours did. Um, so, I, th- you know, they'll see their value come down. Um, hopefully affordability will will improve for a lot of people trying to get in. And then there's the fundamental question, though, of supply and demand. Um, that's the I think that's the question everybody's asking right now is, do we have a shortage of housing? And, and a lot of people are saying the market will hold up better because fundamental supply is low. So that will be sort of a, you know, a, a buffer there, so to speak. We'll see. I mean, that, that'll be interesting to see. That is the question I ask myself a lot. We're in Oregon right now. I mean, we got listeners all over the world, so it, this may not apply. But in Oregon, we have a unique phenomenon because we have a lot of California people coming up and buying property. It's a lot cheaper than it is. It's still expensive for people living in Oregon, but for California money, easier to to buy homes here. I've seen cash offers all the time. So people coming into the state in migration, buying up what supplies left is causing prices to go up. So not only do you have this economic thing happening, you also have just demographic stuff happening where yeah. people so, coming in. That's a really so, good point. Right? Um, so, the, the, because not, we're not just talking about pure monetary phenomena. We've had this, the whole pandemic and the work from home thing and everything else, and I think the political environment has played a role in this. You're seeing a lot of migration, a lot of Californians moving to Phoenix, moving to Boise, Idaho. Those are the boom markets. We're sort of benefiting from that as well, but it's become interesting to see that. Um, again, in some of those markets too, this is where it gets muddled. Like in Phoenix, it's just gone nuts. I mean, they've had incredible appreciation, but what's happening now is Phoenix not that cheap anymore. 
hard. It's not that cheap relative to California anymore. And then what ends up happening is I call it, you go back to the organic market you have, which is what does the local job support in terms of housing prices? And that's one thing they're looking at here is this may be fairly pocketed with real estate. Certain markets probably will take it really in the shorts, like Phoenix, Boise. Those places will probably have the greatest decline, partly because they have the greatest increases, but also because the local economy, once you get the buyer from California or wherever with all the money, the local economy doesn't support those home prices. The locals can't afford it. So the price gets bid up. And so what ends up happening is when all, the, all that settles out and Californians, we've done this for 20 years in Oregon where Californians kind of come in and then they stop for a while right. and then they all start coming in again. It kind of goes away. Um, event, right. right. Eventually the local market, what people can earn in the local market drives real estate prices. And when that gets out of whack, you got to reset that at some point, right? Prices have to come down because the locals can't afford it. And nobody from California wants to be the marginal buyer anymore. So that kind of ebbs and flows. So the pandemic definitely threw a big monkey wrench in all this because you had all this Fed policy and all these other things spooling up and then throw in a massive dose of social disruption and economic disruption and all that. And also people working from wherever they want to work. So now they're buying real estate wherever. And it's just, it's disruptive. Yeah. It's cramming too much change into too short a window. You know, that's the other thing too, is it's nice when you kind of take trends over long periods of time and you can adjust to them. It's these spikes and shocks that become so disconcerting. So to answer your original question, it's going to be a wild ride in everything. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're buying fine wine, muscle cars, you know, stock market, real estate, whatever those are. Every asset in this country has been bid up significantly as a function of this monetary phenomena and arguably internationally. You want to talk about real estate prices, man, wow, go to China. We, they get, we got nothing on them. Um, so, you know, it's going to be a period of readjustment there, and that tends to be a fairly disconcerting thing. But this is where people, this is what it means to be an investor, and yeah. this is where you have to stay the course and kind of keep your wits about you as you go through these kind of events, because panic is not a good strategy. No, it's not. And this is why I wanted you on the podcast, too, just because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotions that go into investing. And whether you're just, you're contributing to a 401k plan through your employer, you're trying to buy your first home, timing is a lot of this equation. And for a lot of people, they don't, the uneasiness of the volatility and just the uncertainty of the future is it's unsettling. And I mean, I, let's bring it back to the, like a retirement plan. So for, for a lot of the listeners, they're HR professionals, they're leaders, and they've got people that report to them and you know, most, most organizations have a retirement plan, a 401k. You know, at this point, if somebody's like going to contribute to their first 401k ever, where do they even start? I mean, do you jump into the market? Do you not? Like, how do you answer that question when they're, when they're timid? They don't know what to do. Well, first of all, our emotions relative to these things, it's funny. I always look at stock investing or investing in retirement plans. It's the one place where our emotions run counter to everything else we do. You know, when the local, you know, department store, Nordstrom's or whatever, has a sale and it's the sweater you own your whole life, you buy two of them. When the stock market goes down, instead of people buying more, their first reaction is, I got to get out, I panic, you know. It's the, and, you know, and then on the other side, when it's going up and it's going up in value dramatically, our fear of missing out, they call it FOMO, that's a FOMO, fear of missing out makes us, I got to get in on that, I got to buy. And it's, it's, it's totally counter to the logic. Our emotion runs counter to the logic. And that's the, the interesting part about retirement plans. Like if I looked at it today, for most people in a retirement plan, you know, this is an ideal time to get in. You know, I, I always say, what's the difference of what you're buying today in the S&P 500 versus a year ago when you were buying the same thing through your payroll deduction? And they kind of look at you and go, what do you mean? I go, it's 20% cheaper. That's a good thing. But I mean, maybe the uncertainties around like, is going to go down further. I think that's the unknown. Yeah, they don't want to catch scary. a falling. Yeah, they don't want to catch a falling knife. That and that's it's funny you bring that up because I think that's what I worry about with the real estate market is 
when it's going up, he's like, I got to get in. That mania got nuts. People were bidding up houses. Crazy stuff was happening. The problem is when it starts to go down, that and that's where that's where it gets dangerous. People are like, yeah, I think I'll wait. And I'll wait further. No one wants to catch that falling knife. So then it's like, where's the bottom of this thing? That's where depressionary stuff comes into play is you wait, you wait, you wait versus the other side of the inflationary is you go, go, go now because you're afraid the price is going to be higher later. It's weird. The, I think the depressionary side scarier, isn't it? When you just wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. Basically, it feels like there's no bottom to it. I mean, that's the thing is when people look at that, and again, that's just incredibly emotional. That's, I always use the term um, 2008 and, and now. This is what buying low feels like. And when I say that, what I mean is it doesn't feel that good. I asked people the question in 2008, what would you do differently if you could go back in 2009? Put in the stocks, I'd, buy, I'd leverage myself like crazy. I'd buy real estate. I'd buy everything. I'd just ham fist. And I said, so why, why didn't people do that? Because the world was coming to an end. I mean, we were literally a weekend away from the entire financial system collapsing, you know. And so the courage, the belief system it would take to, to go that, ha- you know, ham-fisted all in on stuff. Wow. You know, and we may we may sort of retest that same perspective here. And you could argue we're already sort of somewhat in that a little bit, not nearly as dire as it was 08. I mean, the bottom just fell out from us. But if we go through that again here, that's that's where you got to train yourself on the emotional side saying, okay, the world's not coming to an end. And you got to worry about your job and, and keeping your powder dry. It's one thing to say, I want to keep contributing my 401k when you don't have a job and you got to make ends meet. Um, but so far, the unemployment market is, or the labor market is so strong in favor of labor. Nobody's feeling, if you're feeling the pain in the labor market right now, there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry, because, you know, we've got 11 million open jobs in this country. That, that number may have come down a bit in the last six, eight months, but there is such an incredible demand for labor at this point. That's sort of my silver lining on all this is hopefully if people stay fully employed, an economic disruption like this is an opportunity when you're when you're unemployed then it just compounds you know what i always think about with like the just the, the stock market in general is when people are investing regularly you're fusing capital into the economy too and with labor shortages now you're able to some of these organizations who really need the talent they're able to go spend money on labor well and this may be a little bit of a shift too that's going on as we speak is Corporate America has, has a pretty good run in profitability, and and probably I, I would make the argument that the share of benefits of this economic prosperity has been a little bit concentrated to the one percenters and corporate shareholders. Bottom line is shareholders have benefited most dramatically, and I think the pushback here now is it's like, hey, it's time for labor to get their cut of this, um, and I think that's positive socially. I really do. I think that so, you know, that's a good example of how free markets can address. Um, you know, inequities and things of that nature. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a free market guy to a point, to a point because like free markets will get out of control. I always sat around and think about it. They can, they usually sort themselves out versus some centralized, you know, government agency or whatever, trying to save, save the world's problems. It just, I, th- I think a market sorts things out a little bit better. Absolutely. You know, it's, there's more truth to it, but I do think that, that even just unabated free markets are probably get out of hand. Yeah. You know, I always think about, I always laugh about like playing Monopoly as a kid. One person ends up with the whole thing, which is sort of the nature of free markets left ungoverned or unregulated. So it's that mixture of good free markets with some good policy that oversees that and makes sure it doesn't get out of whack. And usually what ends up happening, though, is, you know, the nature of big government or any big organization is to get bigger. The old saying goes, you know, the bureaucracy will continue to grow grow to meet the burgeoning needs of the bureaucracy. 
<laughs> so, and, and governments by definition are just sort of voracious animals that want to get bigger and be more in control. That's just sort of the nature of it. It is. That is interesting. I think in America, we've definitely seen this where it's like, you just want nonstop growth. And at what point does that, you know, have a dark side? Well, I, I wonder, that's a really good point. I, I wonder a little bit, and I, I think one of the challenges, you know, for employers now is I think labor during the pandemic got a little bit of a taste of being off the rat wheel. Because let's face it, to get greater productivity, and we've had greater productivity gains, dramatic gains, a lot of it's technology-based, but a lot of it's just Americans work hard. Yeah. Um, right. A lot of that. And I think people realized, hey, I, this is one rat that's kind of getting off the wheel here. I'm just not going to participate anymore. And I think a lot of people have done that. They're doing that. They're also asking for the four-day work week. I don't know if you hear that pop up every once in a while, but like, what does that do to a market economy that's used to just high productivity? And now you have labor shortages plus people want to work. They want to have that work-life balance. What does it do? Bottom line, it, it impacts prosperity. If you look at the lifestyle Americans enjoy, and we have the greatest you know lifestyle in the world. I mean, we you know arguably some Europeans would say we're silly for working as hard as we do. But it's in looking at that, I think that what you got a generation of people, and I don't want to pick on millennials, but it's so easy. I'm a millennial. You just go so, ahead and, and pick and, on and, me. And, and you're low-hanging fruit. Come yeah. on. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Every generation fits that, right? Yeah, right. I just sound like an old guy going, oh, it was crazy Elvis, you know. I don't know if that's going to last, you know. <laughs> think about that kind of stuff generationally. But what millennials, I'm not sure if they're making the connection, is like if you guys want more work-life balance, that's not the lifestyle that you're expecting. You know, our prosperity is heavily a function of our productivity. And so if we don't want to remain that productive or grow that productivity, we have to accept a, a lower standard of living as, as an economy as a whole. As long as everybody's cool with that, that's fine. I just, I think a lot of people have studied, no, I want all the goodies. I just don't want to have to work as much for it. Yeah, that, the math doesn't work on that. No, it doesn't. And honestly, I've, you know, I've read some books recently where it's like, you know, if you lower your standards, a lot of people are happier that way too. Like versus just constantly chasing happiness out in the future. Like maybe just settle down a little bit. Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the pandemic has done a lot to sort of make people stop and sort of take a breath and look at the meaning of their life and how they spend their time and things like that. I think we may look back kind of like we did at 08 as the pandemic created that outcome, which was a lot, it was completely unexpected of creating a societal change around the meaning of work and life balance and all those kind of things, which is ultimately healthy. But at the end of the day, we've been on this treadmill my whole life of more money, more productivity, more success. I mean, that's just kind of the singular focus Americans have had. And and that may be being questioned and being paused somewhat. The thing that's most interesting to me, we look at all these economic statistics that are out there, and the one I saw recently that was really fascinating was a big drop in productivity. You know, we do you attribute that to? Because people say they're working harder and they're more burned out than ever. And that's generalization, yeah, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know where to, I don't know exactly where to put that in the sense that, but, but to me, that's such a meaningful statistic yeah. in the sense that constant upgrade in productivity has been kind of the tenor of our economy, or that's been kind of the hallmark of our economy is through technology and hard work, we're able to be more productive. I, I'm almost scared to say this number, but I want to say for the first half of this year, it went down seven and a half percent. That seems like an epic number to me, and I'm yeah, kind of digging into some of those numbers to see more about it. But it doesn't surprise me because every employer I talk to, and I. I run a little experiment every quarter working with retirement plan clients, mm -hmm. going through all their fiduciary stuff and talking about how their business is and kind of doing the normal stewardship things that I do with regard to working with retirement plans. 
And every one of them, it's a, the theme is common all the way through. They can't find the people that they need to hire. Frankly, it's probably putting more pressure on the people they have to kind of pick up the slack. So that may be where some of the burnout is coming is the, you know, I call it the success tax when you're really good and everybody loads everything on you. So those, and those people are getting fried. So there's only so hard you can push those people with that success tax. And I got to think that's a, that's a real HR struggle a lot of clients are having now. I mean, I, it's, a, it's a very difficult time to be a business owner and, and an HR professional in this environment, I would think. It's a lot of work. You said you, you, know, you work with a lot of organizations about the retirement plans. What are you encouraging them to do? Like, how do, how do they communicate with their people about whether to contribute or not, how much to contribute? And I'm sure every plan's set up so differently, too. Give me some sense for what you're advising you know, it's pretty basic stuff. I mean, in the sense that, you know, make sure you have a good plan with good benefits. And, you know, the trick is really communicating it. People people take benefits for granted. And that's just human nature. I do it, you do it. We just kind of get used to what's in our life and that becomes the status quo. Yeah. So you have to constantly kind of reset and say, hey, we've got great medical benefits. And by the way, we've got this 401k with a great match. Just reminding people that stuff becomes important. And they go, oh, okay. I go and do meetings all the time and I leave and the clients are always like, thanks for doing that. And I didn't really do anything other than just kind of remind everybody this is a good thing. Stay the course. You got a good plan. And that's that varies a little bit by client. But for the most part, they have good benefits and putting things in right context where, you know, say, you know, you, we, we, we talk all the time in this business in the numbers. We don't tell people what it means. You know, we'll go through and say, well, if you do this and your employer will match and do this and that, it's kind of like wah, wah, wah. And then what I'll come to say, so what's going on here is your employer has agreed to fund 30% of your retirement or 40% of your retirement. And all of a sudden they go, oh, really? Is that what that all means? Free money and 40 percent of my retirement, I'd say. And then I also tell them, I feel lucky you have a plan. 50% of Americans have no retirement plan vehicle available for them at all. So what are they waiting for? How are they going to retire? That's scary. The, well, or they will retire like a lot of Americans do on Social Security at a very base level existence. Social Security was never designed to be a primary no, retirement system. It, I thought it was a temporary solution. Um, I don't know if it was designed to be temporary, but it was. It was. It was started in 1934, part of you know Roosevelt's addressing the Great Depression. At that time, we didn't. We didn't have um, social safety nets at that time. So you know, old people were literally dying in the street. I mean, it was it was dire. So that came out of that saying, we want to create a basic social safety net of people in retirement won't starve to death. And that's about all Social Security really does. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of people already very, very much living on the edge in retirement, a large number of Americans, large percentage, which is really tragic, frankly. Yeah, so you had, you had the Social Security, which is never meant to, it was a social blanket, essentially. And then, you know, unions were really popular for decades and pensions were sort of part of that, but those are sort of dying off too, aren't they? That's all gone. Well, so I got to witness this in real time. I started selling 401k plans in 1991. It was the first job I had at college, literally. It's all I've ever done. And so at that time, there was still a ton of defined benefit plans around, not just union, but I mean, a lot of employers, even here in Portland, Oregon, I can name all the DB plans that were in town, these big companies. And it was kind of a nice thing because the employer took the risk and you got your check in the mailbox and you worked for an employer long term and you got the gold watch and the check. And something like 40% of the population in, in the late 80s were covered under a defined benefit pension system slash scheme. Now it's like 5% or less. And basically, defined benefit pension plans are strictly the domain anymore of public employees and unions. And even the and even the unions that are not public employee based, you know, steamfitters and longshoremen, all that, those are converting to 401k type schemes because frankly, the demographics don't work anymore. Union membership keeps going down. Well, 
defined benefit plans kind of live off of increased membership and growth and money. You kind of have to have to kind of like uh, social security in a way, right? Exactly. And, and right. You don't have the demographics backing it up. Now you have a problem. It's a, there's a mismatch of money going out versus coming in. Exactly. Well, and frankly, in this country, you know, we've got an aging demographic. I mean, that's just, you know, the same thing Japan. I mean, these countries are like, hey, you don't have enough young people coming to support the people aging out. And so you end up with a long-term demographic problem. And that's... Well, that doesn't bode well for, like, if I want to invest in the stock market right now, like long-term, is that not going to be good for me? Uh, you might not think that hard on that. I don't <laughs> No, I mean, at the end of the day, these are all fundamental problems that have to be addressed. But at the end, there's, there's solutions for all of this. And, but, but, but I do think we've relied so much on the solution that we've always laid on is, hey, more productivity, more people, let's call it more cowbell. <laughs> you know, and, and so we've always had this sort of the rising We're kind of like Japan, where we've got a large number of people that are of older age that are more demanding of the social safety nets and systems that we put in place. It's putting a real strain on, on our economics, for sure. I mean, it's just you know, I mean, this is this will sound weird, and this is the social statement stuff, and people are always like, what are your thoughts on immigration? I'll, I'll go with this. I'm like, we need about 30 million working-age people to come to this country because yep. we need the labor, we need the productivity, and we need young people to support the older people. That's why Japan is in such dire circumstances is they have an aging population and no solution yeah, for Yeah, and it. if you're not having kids that will replace the aging population that's leaving the workforce or, or dying – you have to have in-migration from other countries. Right. I don't know what the number is from Japan, but literally their birth rate, I think, is less than one per couple kind of thing. You know, and, and if I remember, like, the replacement ratio, if you, you know, like, couples have to have two and a half kids to replace, to keep population static. I think that's the number. Don't quote me on that because that's... <laughs> but but it, but those numbers get really important because in the end, we're all sort of a, of a creature of these demographic trends. What's interesting, years ago, I, for whatever reason, like there was a five-year stint where I was just reading every economic book I could. I read Milton Friedman. I read a guy named Harry Dent, familiar with him. He's a big demographics guy. And so when I read those books, I'm like, ah, this is, this is whatever. But it's a lot of it's coming to fruition here. It's a big, it's a, it's a big part of what we experience in the market economy. Mm -hmm. No, it's uh, no, I read dense stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to take a long view, I mean, demographics drive everything, <laughs> you know, everything. And I do think that that if you look at the pandemic too, I think that changed in a very radical and quick way a lot of demographic stuff. And I think we're still digesting all that. There's going to be case studies written about this those last two years forever, and I can't wait to see the research on that. It's funny. I I, I totally agree. I you know, it's funny. We've been living in the shadow of 2008 since then. I think 15 years we'll look back at the pandemic and go, we lived in the shadow of that. Good, bad, and otherwise. I don't think it's all negative. I think there's some. I think there's some really cool things that can come out of what happened with the pandemic. That's an odd way of saying that. I think there's some no, fascinating I, you're, things. You're onto something. I think there, I, I think there's so much to be learned from hard times and tough couple of years for so many people. And you can't be always fat and happy because we just then we don't have the desire to change and grow. And when you have hard times like we just did, there's a lot to be learned from it, and we're going to move forward in better ways. I'm, at least that's the optimistic view I'm looking at. I, I couldn't agree more. Easy times make you soft. Yes. I would make the argument that part of part of what's going on in this country now is we got real soft. We got, we got real soft. We have a lot of nice stuff. We're incredibly prosperous. And because we are the reserve currency of the four world, this is a big deal. Our game works really well because we're the reserve currency for the world. So we can print money and do all these different things, and it gives us a lot of advantages other people to other countries don't have. So we're epically prosperous. Really, we are. But it makes you soft. And 
Adversity is positive. That's that's why I think I, I remain fairly positive about what we're going to go through here with the markets and the economy and everything else because we come out the other side stronger, more courageous, ideally harder working and more more um, robust as a function of that. Yeah. Quick, The quickening process, I would call it. Getting from this conversation, this has been awesome, by the way. What I'm getting from this is individuals need to really take ownership over their life. And if they have access to a retirement plan or other vehicles like it, they they need to pay attention to it. They need to get involved if they can. So if, if you're talking to a young 20-year-old just into the workforce, they have this they have a retirement plan in front of them. What do you say to them? I'm sure you said something to your son when he was in his early 20s. What do you say to him? You say to him? <laughs> uh, Did he um, listen? <laughs> no, well, I, I'm gonna leave my son out of the discussion. He's a great kid. I mean, he's good. And but you know, when he was 20 years old, I was like, okay, we're you know, here's how you show up to work, and here's how you clean. You know, it's funny. I think 30 is the new 20. That's, I mean, that's kind of true. I'm a, I'm a child at heart. And when I turned 30 years ago, I, um, but, but, the, but we've just changed, the, you know, and I don't mean that as, I hope it doesn't sound negative in the sense that this is a more immature generation. It's just, it's just different. Um, how they're maturing when they join the workforce, how they see joining the workforce and doing different things. It's just different now. And I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do my best as a parent and as an older person to recognize these things. But I'd say for a younger person, I'd say it, it, you just won the game. I'll start with this and say, you and I having this conversation, let's pretend you're the 20, let's 25, 20, I can't imagine. 25-year-old said, you won the game. We're having a conversation right now that your 50-year-old self would want to have with you, but you're actually doing it. How many people, when they hit, I'm 53, so you look back at your life and you go, I wish I could talk to my 25-year-old self and have a conversation about do this, don't do this, you know, coach myself. You're doing that right now. And most people don't regret starting their savings, getting a nest egg, and getting, getting your stage in life getting going on that. Start that today and, and you're winning the game. And then obviously I have all kinds of fun tools to show them that by doing this early, you've won the game. You put time on your side and time is everything. You can't make up for lost time. So you're putting time on your side. That's the conversation I have with these young, young people that I talk with about this and just say, hey, this is a fabulous opportunity and it's great that we're having this conversation. And that's what I talk to the HR people all the time is how do you tie in these young people to, to taking more of a long-term perspective? Yeah. Well, you talk to them about all this stuff. You just have to go, because they're not going to get it on their own. They're not going to figure that out on their own. I didn't. I wouldn't have. Do you have, like, materials that you give HR professionals and people to be able to have that conversation with their young staff? Absolutely. There's every, every retirement plan company out there has a great one-page piece that shows someone who starts saving when they're 25 and how they end up versus someone that just waits till they're 40, which is not exactly waiting way too long. But most people do. Most people don't get a good head start in their 20s for whatever reasons. But basically, you show them those numbers, and the numbers are just huge. You know, you basically start when you're 25. You save half as much money as everybody else, and you've got three times as much at the end. And they just go... Why wouldn't I do this? It's exactly. The math is pretty compelling when you lay it out to people that way, and they go, I got to do this. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about the retirement plan, too, when you have the money coming out of your check, you almost set it and forget about it. You don't, like, you don't even notice it after a certain amount of time. And maybe at first, when you have the deductions coming out, you, you notice it. But then after a while, it's like, eh, it's just, just like any other deduction. Well, you know, it's funny. One thing we do really poorly in this country is we do a horrible job of educating young people about finances. We really almost don't at all. So once in a while you find somebody out there whose parents clearly coach them up, but it's largely parental. I think it needs to be more societal in the sense of showing people, hey, we have such a consumer driven society. We get bombarded with a hundred messages a day to spend money and zero 
to save it and to build a financial future for yourself. So we, you know, that's one thing I'm working with clients a lot on is trying to get those kind of messages and that kind of format in there. And hopefully the pandemic will actually be a positive factor in that in the sense that I think people are stepping back and looking at sort of the rampant consumerism that is America, right? That's that's kind of the hallmark of being American, right? Is look at that and say, is that really getting you where you want to go? Are you happy? Or are you just chasing your tail? And I think the answer for most people is they're just chasing their tail um, in the sense it's not giving them fulfillment, life balance, anything. So I think, you know, that's the trick is to how to, you know, how to get with young people and kind of teach them the whole idea of budgeting. And the, the line I use is, do you run your money or does it run you? And when I say that to people, they instantly get what I'm talking about. Nobody has a question of what that means. And they're like, no, nah, I want to be in control. I want to run my money instead of running me because that's just so it much It requires more. planning. And discipline. You have to say no. You're like, no, I'm not going to buy that car, and I'm not going to the music festival. Or- it's tough when in this social media world that we're in, and the keeping up with the Joneses is, is has a magnifying glass on it. The, the funny thing is, the people I know that are the happiest aren't the ones with the most stuff. They're the ones that have that sort of contentment and calm about. My bills are paid. I'm not stressing about this. I can have what I want, but that doesn't mean I go buy it because I can, but I don't because you know what. I love the the ease and contentment that I have in myself around being sort of in control of my financial situation. That level of, of contentment doesn't have to be just for people that have gobs of money. Anybody can have that. It's it's a function of discipline and other things. So, I mean, to be fair, it, it's difficult to make ends meet depending on where you, where you are economically, and I want to be sensitive to that. But... Um, there's a great book out there. It's an old book. It's called The Millionaire Next Door. I was just about to say that. In my early 20s, I read that. And it was like, most millionaires, you wouldn't even know they're millionaires because they live modestly. They they don't have debt. They drive 10-year-old cars. And the secret, though, is they don't make crazy money. They're, they're not in that position because they were making exceptional incomes. It's because of their habits. They made reasonable incomes. Very, you know, I, mean, I've, I run into a ton of people that make a lot of money, and they are broke. There's a ton of that out there. So don't confuse financial situation with, you know, it's difficult to do at a very low income. That's tricky. But once you get into sort of more of a, you know, mid, mid-level mid income, I don't want to call it middle class. I'm not sure how we characterize that. And I'm not even sure what the number would be today because of inflation. It keeps going up. You know, when you got 8 or 10% inflation, that number is 10% higher than it was last year. I'm still getting used to sort of getting my head around what a car costs in inflationary environment. I know, dude. I, I'm I love bacon, and I'm paying like ten bucks for a thing of bacon, and I paid six bucks last year. The thing is blowing me away is like cars. Oh yeah. You know, like you know, it, it's not that unusual now to ninety hundred thousand dollars for a truck or an SUV or something. You're just like, when did I this al- happen? I also get like weekly emails from my dealership because I bought I bought a brand new car two three years ago in a, a GMC Acadia. And they email me weekly saying, you can get way more than what you paid for it. And I'm like, they, they depreciate when you get off the lot. Like, how is that even possible? I have a used car dealer as a client of mine. And he said, right now, you can still sell used cars at MSRP or greater. That, that's that's that, wild. total market. Well, but that's that's yeah. supply chain yeah. pandemic. It all, it, you know, that's just the, I, I think we radically underestimated the disruption of shutting the economy down for the pandemic. I, I got into a big argument. My old man's an econ guy too. So we went round and around, but he's 80 years old. So he was kind of like, you know, I just want to get COVID and stuff. And I'm like, well, put on your econ hat, dad. This, this is kind of a big deal shutting this down. And this is an experiment we never tried before. This is going to have some some fairly ugly unintended consequences, I think, that we really are not taking quite seriously enough. And I, I'm pretty sure I was right about that. 
I think so too. In the unintended consequences, we'll see for years to come. I think. Yeah, and you know, hopefully some of it will be positive. I mean, I think there's some real positives coming out. I am very concerned about the lack of productivity. That's the one thing that drives me the most nuts. And and that's actually been a long-term trend. If you look at labor force participation, so we get so focused on unemployment. That that's fine. That's an important number. If people are looking for a job and can't find them, I get that. But what's more telling is how many people are in the workforce. So in two, year 2000, roughly, um, labor force participation in this country was close to 70%. Now it's 62%. So 8% of 300 million people, you know, that's 20 to 30 million people that aren't in the workforce that would have been 25 years ago, 23 years ago. Do you contribute that to, is it automation? Is it people not having the desire to work? What, what is it? I think it's Automation's part of it. It's 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 multifaceted, yeah, sure. but it, but definitely it's fine. I'm trying to figure this out. You know, but it's I think part of it is automation. Part of it is uh, prosperity. You know, when you look at the Fed policy of of radically increasing money supply and generating that much more you know monetary largesse, it kicks people out of the workforce. You know, when you got a two you know two parent family and you know things are really great, all of a sudden you're like, well, why don't you stay home? And you know, I'm making enough. We can do that. My wife and I did that. We're like, you know, yeah. So you, you look at those things. I, I think it's a number of those things. I think, honestly, the labor force participation is somewhat of a function of our, of our prosperity. I look at my kids. I remember growing up, my kids worked because I wanted to learn how to work, not because we needed the money. But I remember talking to a lot of people like, you know, they didn't want to be inconvenienced by having their kid have a job and not be able to go on the water skiing trip they wanted to go on. Right. So a lot, lot less kids need to work. You know why? Because their parents make tons of money and, and they give it to them. Um, I mean, I saw a lot of that. We live in a fairly affluent community. And, you know, I still remember, I'll still remember this. Never forget it. One of my, I overheard my son talking to one of his friends and his friend's like, why do you need a job? Your dad's got plenty of money. It was, I mean, and that's one, it's a, none of their business. And then two, it's you, your purpose was to instill the discipline and, and to know what hard work is like. But I think those are all the factors that contribute to that. Um, what'll be interesting to see is if we go through a real significant recession here, which you know remains to be seen, what that'll do to the labor market. It'll be fascinating to see how that how that plays out because right now the trend is people want to work less, less hours. You know, and labor is really in the driver's seat right now. We all know that, right? I mean, unions are all striking. Okay, yeah. I mean, this is a little bit of labor pushing back. It's an employee-based market right now, which is it's an interesting time because before, it, you know, right out of 2008, it was employer market. Most of the employers I've talked to recently, they have sort of a short list of people they'd like to not be working there, but they can't afford to do that. So they have, you know, not. I'm not saying that's you know when it gets, you know, those are the first people to go, but probably are. <laughs> I've seen some of that already. But the reality is, you know, people have that mentality. What do you do? Fire me? You know, who, who else are you going to get? Whether people say that out loud or that's kind of a little bubble over their head, what they're thinking is the bubble over their head. And I think that that's out there. But that's, you know, that pendulum swings back and forth. It does. That's, that's all part of the normal, healthy things that go on. Yeah. Well, this has been so fun. I mean, we, we went around and around about the market, the economy. Uh, you gave us a good history lesson, which I really appreciate. And for people listening, maybe they didn't know the background of that. So it's it's really helpful when making future decisions. Let's see, what else? I mean, do you have, do you have a blog? Do you have a website? Anything that people can go like follow your work? I mean, you're a very smart guy. Well, I appreciate that. It's it's funny. I think I need to do more of that kind of stuff. You know, it's funny. I don't. I don't. Yeah, you should. Well, here you're starting here. Yeah, on the I was say, this is kind of my this is kind of my uh, my first foray at this, so I've really enjoyed it. But I've I've thought about that. How to get it? Can I get my messaging out and information out? And what I've really done is just it's been just directly with clients or people that I work with that, that I want to be clients. But uh, you know, I, that's where I'm the old guy. I gotta I gotta cast a wider technology net. You might have to get on TikTok or something. <laughs> I'm not 
much of a dancer. Uh, <laughs> I see educational stuff on there every, every once in a no, while. No, but uh, no, I, I really appreciate this conversation because I, you know, to me, the, the, what this is all about for me is is having, um, what's the old saying, the unexplored life isn't worth living. And to me, what's fascinating is to look at the microcosm of sort of what we're in the middle of as a people and as a society. And, and the economics drive so much of this now. Yeah. You know, let's face it, America is really an economic dream, right? Why do people want to come here? Well, freedom, but really economic opportunity is what. And, and so I think it's, we're going through an interesting time right now, and I'm just anxious to be a participant in that. That, one, to learn from young people about how they view things and change my perspective, but also at the same time to sort of impart some of the things that we know are sort of wisdom-based. We're like, guys, I, I, I love the idea you got there. I think that's really interesting. It just, the math don't work. And and that's not how we got here. So the question is, if you don't know how, where you came from, how do you know where you're going? And I think a lot of that comes down to the economics of our country, the ethic of our country. And I, I think there's a little bit of a, a divide there. I think there's a lack of understanding of that history a little bit. And I think that's, that's only concerning concern I really have is getting people to kind of see all that for what it is. I'm always amazed at some of the people I see that are wealthy and famous and accomplished today that came from literally nothing. You know, people that grew up and didn't have shoes. I always think of Dolly Parton as an example of that. Have you heard her story? She's a fascinating lady, but I mean, she's, I mean, how old is she? Probably 75 now, you know, pushing 80. And she works like a fiend. I guess she's just goes, goes, goes. And if you look at her life, you go, somebody didn't have shoes till she was 16. That kind of gets in, that gets in your DNA. The Great Depression is a good example of what I thought was an event that got in people's DNA. I think I'm the last generation of that because I kind of inherited that from my grandparents, that sort of, you know, the people that would save tinfoil. But when you go through Great Depression, you got nothing. I mean, you got less than nothing. That stays with you forever. We got a whole generation of people. I hope we never go through that again. But a, but a fairly difficult economic event could, could get us back on our path a little bit. I'm trying to find the silver lining, this yeah. dark cloud of things that's going on is we got to find where's the positive in all this and how do we come together in all this. And But, you know, it's, it's going to be a trying time. It's going to test people. And that's where we got to be front and center and talking to people. And frankly, for young people, this is the best thing that happened to you. It really could. Really robust labor market. Housing prices are going to come your way. Probably a generational stock buying opportunity, potentially. It's going to feel really ugly when it happens. It's It sounds good when I talk about it like this. But when it actually happens, it's going to be painful. But I think it'll be, I'm going to remain positive about what it can do for us as a people. Chris Cubbage, I appreciate you. This is fun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.